Will you pray with me? Oh God, in the stillness, come meet us. Amen. In 2017, the HuffPost published an article titled Three Scientifically Backed Reasons Why Working Less Leads to More Productivity. So, although we typically think of the work week in the U.S. as 40 hours per week, according to that article, Americans are actually working, on average, 47 hours per week. Four out of ten Americans say they work more than 50 hours per week. And two out of every 10 Americans say they work more than 60 hours per week. However, what the studies show is that working more doesn't actually lead to more productivity. And the reasons, according to this article, are threefold. First, that working too much uh, ends up leading to health issues that cause employees to take more sick days, and they end up missing work, uh, sometimes at critical periods. The second reason is that working longer hours doesn't result in increased efficiency because of something which, inter interestingly enough, is called Parkinson's Law. And this law says that work expands to fill the time available for its completion. So for example, if you have 30 minutes to do a task, you will find a way to get it done in 30 minutes. If you have two hours for a task, it will take two whole hours to get it done. I think I know this very well in my life. I just didn't know it had a name. And then the third reason that this article says that working too many hours leads to exhaustion, which actually increases the number of errors that are committed by employees. Now, from the perspective of this article, this is an argument for employers to create environments that do, that do not demand more than 40 hours of work per week for their employees. And the conclusion is that if an employer does this, it will actually lead to greater production and therefore greater profits. But there's a personal side of this as well, which I think is how we as individuals approach rest and the way that we exercise control over our work and leisure time. There's a blog by Rick Morley where he cites several examples or several sources to talk about the way that Americans approach rest. So here are some statistics that he, he highlights from various sources. Americans leave 429 million vacation days a year unused. That's a lot. Even when we're out of the office, we're still working enough that we voluntarily work a day of overtime each week 40% of Americans report getting less than the recommended amount of sleep. 40% of Americans check their work email on vacation. 50% check it in bed. And 38% check it at the dinner table. Americans take less vacation, work longer days, and retire later than the rest of the world. And 36% of Americans don't even plan on using all of their vacation days. Now you might be thinking, well, that's okay because we're living the good life here in America. I hate to break it to you, but that is a false narrative. We are living a life full of material comforts, and we are driven by commodity production and consumerism. That is not the same thing as a good life. We are not happier, more emotionally stable, 
or more spiritually connected because we work more. We are tired, we are anxious, and we are exhausted. Traditionally, Judaism and Christianity have clung to a concept of Sabbath to combat this false narrative that the good and meaningful life is a life of more work and more stuff and more money. Walter Brueggemann, in his book, Sabbath as Resistance, Saying No to the Culture of Now, invites us to think of practicing Sabbath as resistance to coercion. Now, coercion is the practice of persuading someone to do something by using force or threats. So you might be thinking, I don't know if that really fits. And yet, the false nature of these gods of commodity and production and consumerism, the gods of restlessness, the gods of Pharaoh in the land of Egypt, the false nature of these gods is such that we don't even realize we are being forced or threatened. The allure is so attractive The gifts of wealth from these gods are so tempting that we willingly walk into a life of coercion for ourselves and then spread it enthusiastically to others. Sabbath, in so many ways, was the first fair labor law. Before blue laws that forbid certain activities on religious days and before labor unions advocated for shorter work days or reasonable work weeks, Sabbath says no to cramming eight days of work into seven days. In fact, Sabbath provides seven days of prosperity for six days of work. You might remember that the Ten Commandments were originally given to Moses when the Israelites were there at Mount Sinai. They'd been freed from slavery. They were headed toward the promised land, but they hadn't gotten there yet. And in Exodus 20, God makes a relational covenant with the people. And the instructions that God gives to the people for living this covenant life are found in those Ten Commandments. The first three that we talked about last week are all about who God is and how to worship this God of rest. The last six are all about how we live in peaceful rest in our relationships with our neighbors. And the fourth commandment, which we are looking at today, is the bridge that connecting peace between loving God and loving our neighbor, and it is about keeping the Sabbath. And so to paraphrase Exodus 20, verses 8 through 10, six days are for work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord, and no one should do any work, including your children, your slaves, your livestock, and the alien residents in your town. And so the Sabbath is not just a day of personal rest, It's not just that I get to rest while everyone else around me is doing all of the work. It's that the entire family rests. And it's not, it's it's that even those who, who are being taken advantage of in the culture get to rest. The immigrants rest, the poor rest, even the animals rest on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a day of communal rest and keeping the Sabbath is about constructing a society in which all rest, not just some. In Exodus 20, 11, it goes on to give the reason or the motivation for this commandment to rest, and it has to do with who God is. That as we talked about last week, it is the Lord who made heaven and earth, and God is a God who rests 
on that seventh day, and that you and I were created in the image of this resting God. In the next chapters that go on, chapters 21 through 23 of Exodus, the concept of Sabbath is expanded from the idea of resting just one day of the week to what it looks like to construct a whole society where rest is built in. Because Sabbath is actually a lifestyle. Walter Brueggemann writes, people who keep Sabbath live all seven days differently. So the task, according to Moses, is to seven our lives. For for the Israelites, the instructions in these chapters of Exodus on how to seven their lives are very specific. Every seven years, the Israelites are instructed to let their slaves go free. Every seven years, they are to let the land where they grow their food rest. Every seven years, they are to cancel the debts of anyone who owes them money. And every seven times seven years, the ownership of the land returns to the original family. These practices of keeping Sabbath are not solely about a personal day of rest and how I get renewed in my spirit. They are about the way that taking that personal day of rest renews my own soul, our own soul, so that we can be caretakers of other people. That we can imagine a society in which equality is restored, debt is forgiven, land, ownership, and the benefits related to it are shared with all. Sabbath rest is about strengthening the most vulnerable in a society. Because strengthening the most vulnerable actually strengthens the society as a whole. Now the examples given for the Israelites are are culturally bred culturally bound, right? They make sense in that particular day and time, but we can get an idea of what it might look like to apply that concept of communal Sabbath in our current day. Perhaps it looks like fighting for the right of migrants from Central America to seek asylum so that immigrants might also rest. Perhaps it looks like restoring the ownership of land that originally belonged to Native Americans. Perhaps it looks like forgiving the debt that we believe people made poor owe us. By Exodus 24, Moses is finished explaining the full nature of what it means to keep the Sabbath. And so the people are eager to follow Yahweh, and they sign up to uphold their end of the covenant. But as people are prone to do, they wander. And it is only six chapters later in Exodus 32 when Moses is gone, and they have compiled all their gold. They melted it down, and they've created a golden calf, which they have decided to worship instead. God is angry with their actions. And Moses breaks those two tablets that the Ten Commandments are written on as a sign of the way the people have broken the covenant with God. And yet the God of restful relationship is not done with the people, and Moses is not done with God. And so Moses begins pleading with God that God would have mercy on them. Moses prays and prays and prays, and the covenant is restored. 
Fast forward a few more years and we are now in the book of Deuteronomy. The people have long ago left Mount Sinai. They have wandered some more and they are now standing by the Jordan River. They're ready to cross over into the promised land. Forty years have passed since they first left Egypt. A whole generation has died and passed on. A whole new generation has been born and raised up. And Moses, very old at this point, he stands before the people. And he reminds them of the covenant that God has made with them. And he says something like this. The Lord our God has made a covenant with us at Mount Sinai. It wasn't with our ancestors. No. It was with us. With those of us who are alive today. God made a covenant with you and you and you and you and you. And then Moses details those Ten Commandments again, and they are mostly the same. Mostly. But the fourth commandment, it starts out reading like this, Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male or female slave or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the resident alien in your towns so that your male and female slave may rest as well as you. So far there isn't a notable difference with the commandment as it was written in Exodus. But the next part is remarkably different because it has to do with the motivation for the, keeping the commandment, the why. In Exodus, the reason was because of who God is and how God rests on the seventh day of creation. And since we are made in the image of God, we are also called to divine rest. But in Deuteronomy, the reason is to remember that you were once a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out with a mighty outstretched hand. The Lord delivered you. Now after Moses recaps the Ten Commandments, he goes on for the next 25 chapters. That's why reading Deuteronomy is so exciting. 25 chapters! instructing the people about how to live in the new land. Because you see the new land, the new land will be something unlike they have ever seen or experienced before. By this time, right, the memory of the people is only slavery or wandering in the wilderness. It's all they know. And they will not be in the land of Egypt where the restless gods of Pharaoh enslaved them and everyone else in this endless system of productivity and commodity. They will no longer be in the wilderness where the allure of the golden calves distracted their attention. They will now be in the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land where the ground is fertile and the crops and food will be plenty every day, seven days of the week, a land where they will be tempted to work the plow all seven days, a land where affluence will come easily, 
and they will enjoy power they have never had. A land where other gods already reign, promising surplus wealth. And for this reason, Moses goes on and on for those 25 chapters, because he knows it is important to ground the Israelites once again in the fullness of the Sabbath practice and to make it personal, to make it now that this is a covenant with you and for you. It's not that God was making this covenant with your ancestors. God is making this covenant with you. And it's not that God gave the Sabbath, the, the gift of Sabbath rest to your ancestors. God is giving you the gift of Sabbath rest. Even today, when Jewish families sit around the table in their homes to observe the Sabbath meal, they begin with a prayer that makes it personal. They pray, once we were slaves in Egypt, now we are free people. In Christian tradition and our Methodist communion liturgy, we pray, God, you delivered us from captivity made covenant to be our sovereign God, and spoke to us through the prophets. And that prayer is meant to remind us of the time when we were slaves in Egypt and how God delivered us from captivity, made covenant with us, and spoke to us then and now. The Exodus narrative doesn't just live in the past as a piece of history to be recalled. It lives in the present. It is our story today. Two, once we were slaves. And we have to practice Sabbath to remember that we were free because otherwise the culture of now will coerce us back into slavery. And we will then subsequently set up coercive systems that enslave others. Walter Brueggemann writes, On the Sabbath, you do not have to do more. You do not have to sell more. You do not have to control more. You do not have to know more. You do not have to have your kids in ballet or soccer. You do not have to be younger or more beautiful. You do not have to score more. All of us are tempted back into the life powered by the gods of restlessness and endless production. We are tempted by the surplus wealth, the accolades, the veneer of success that are the gifts of the gods of Pharaoh. And even though God has freed us from captivity, we are tempted to go back to the life of making bricks, of dreaming of bricks, of filling quotas, of pursuing the false gods. And when we do that, we become coercive taskmasters, not only of ourselves, but of those around us. The fourth commandment is a startling stop in the frenzy of a culture of now. And it enables us to be restored in the divine image enough that we create a culture where none of us are coerced. 
Brueggemann writes that Sabbath is the break, regular and public, that permits us to remember. Sabbath is the opportunity to recall Egypt and Pharaoh, and then to remember Yahweh and Exodus. Sabbath is the day to dance and sing. And in this way, keeping the Sabbath is active, not passive. It's a challenge and a leap of faith. It is a practice to resist the coercive life that promises false gifts that do not satisfy. Keeping Sabbath has the capacity to transform us, bear the divine image, remember that you were once held captive, Pause, rest, be. Thanks be to God. Amen.